been fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Welcome everybody, Steve with Suspidelli. I'm coming at you once again with Michael Grady and Don Brohan of the Economic for Social the Economic Center for Social Justice. Right? Can I correct you? Center for Economic and Social Justice. Whatever. That thing. <laughs> <laughs> After all these interviews. Hey, I had it I had it in my head until I was supposed to say it and then it just went bye-bye. We'll write you a sign out. <laughs> Anyways, good morning, wherever, wherever you are. But Michael, Don, thank you again. Good morning. Thanks for having us on, Steve. So we're starting a new series on economic personalism. Some of you guys might be going, why again? We'll get to that. But <laughs> this is going more of a deep dive into what this is, if I'm not, if I am correct. Not correct, not am correct, I don't know. Anyway, to start off with the obvious question, what is economic personalism? I'll give a, just an initial shot at that. What we're talking about is um, a body of principles and ideas and assumptions that enable us to look at, in this case, the economy and see where our place in, uh, for each of us is in the economy to be able to understand what's happening, see where problems are occurring, and then giving us some logical, rational way of solving these problems. And economic personalism, as Mike will go further into, really springs from a larger idea called personalism, uh, which we just recently started identifying our, what you would call paradigm with personalism, which happened to have been written about extensively by Pope John Paul II and Martin Luther King, interestingly enough, also wrote his, doc, his doctoral dissertation on personalism. And it starts with a different view of the human person than what we see in the alternate paradigms of capitalism and socialism, which are, those are, in a sense, reflections of um, certain philosophies, but within the context of economics, how we produce the things, produce and exchange the things that we need to consume. So what this, uh, I'll let Mike go into this further, but people should keep in mind that today, the way uh, economics is viewed does not, whether we're talking about uh, socialism, capitalism, uh, Keynesianism, mixed economies. None of the economic systems today start with the idea of the dignity and empowerment of each person. They use these terms, but there's no solid basis for them. So what happens is we've created systems and cultures of dependency rather than independence. So that's one of the objectives 
uh, in this paradigm is how do you enable everyone to be economically independent? And that requires ownership and proper, private property, private property ownership in the things that are producing. So I'll let Mike take uh, over now. <laughs> yeah, basically, and I, and I just realized that I started out with the word that I had said I have to stop using. Yeah, so we go uh, back through all the videos and count up basically. What's the over-under, 100? <laughs> I think so. Actually, someone once said, you know, in one of the comments on the videos that he wished he had a nickel for every time I said, I'm not making this up. <laughs> That's what you got an editing uh, software for, right, Steve? <laughs> nah, I just leave it in there because I yeah. enjoy hearing him say it. <laughs> you know, plus, plus, I understand that some groups may have a drinking game. Every time I say it, they take a beer or a shot. It's, no. yeah, it's worth more than Wait, a nickel I do anymore. not recommend. This is serious stuff. And it's extremely serious because what we're concerned about with, you know, in, in the broadest sense possible is what is the meaning and purpose of life? Is it to, to enhance the state? Is it to enhance an elite in the state or in society? Or all the above is, well, some people do say that. But we say that the meaning and purpose of life is for every single human being to become more fully human, to become a virtuous person in the Aristotelian sense, which is to become more fully human, to conform yourself to your own nature, which as Catholics believe, and also I believe Muslims and Jews, although I can't claim to speak for them, is that we are created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, we are a reflection of divine nature. Therefore, by conforming ourselves more closely to our own nature, we conform ourselves more closely to God and become more truly what God intended us to be. We are, of course, fully what we are. Everyone is as human as everyone else. There's no such thing as partly human or a second-class human. We are all fully human, but we are not all as fully human as we can be, which is what life is to help us develop and grow here. Now, personalism focuses on the human person, each and every single one, and every single human person is as important as every other human person. And we are all equally human, or, e or as fully human, I should say, as all other human beings. Capitalism, or I should say individualism, focuses on either your, if, if you consider yourself only without reference to all the other human beings, that tends to be individualistic. And you start to think of yourself or your group as better than another group. And this lends, you know, this is elitism, individualism of some kind which tends to capitalism. Uh, collectivism views humanity, which is an abstraction created by human beings. Only God knows everything. We human beings are not quite as good as God, as some people might have noticed. So we use abstractions to try to grasp the immensity of creation. We're never going to grasp it all. So we create basically mental fictions 
they're they're true, but they're our idea of what people are, or rocks are, or the world is, or something like that. It's an abstraction, a generalization that we create from actuality, because we don't know everything that exists. So we put general ideas into our mind. Humanity, the collective, mankind, is that kind of generalization. It exists only in our own minds. It's real. Ideas are real, but they're not real in the same way that reality, you know, actuality is real, created by God. We create abstractions. God creates actuality. So, but what the collectivists do is assume that this abstraction called the collective or humanity or mankind or society or the state is greater than actual human beings. Thus, and this goes to socialism. Now, a good way of summarizing socialism is the abolition of private property in capital. Or, you know, but that's a very quick, you know, summarization and it assumes that you understand what property is and what people are and what rights are and all that. Because a better way of understanding socialism, which does not contradict the abolition of private property, is that the collective has rights that actual human beings do not have. Which means that the socialist who says, oh, but under this type of socialism, we can own. Only because the state says you can. It finds it expedient. It is not recognized as a right inherent in a human being and in every single human being. For example, Monsignor John A. Ryan tried to claim in his doctoral thesis in 1906, A Living Wage, that private property is a natural right, but it's not like other natural rights. It can be taken away. Well, then it's not a natural right. You just contradicted yourself. You cannot have a contradiction because that is the fundamental principle of Thomist and Aristotelian philosophy. You cannot contradict. That's the best way of putting it. Now, what happens is that collectivism tends to socialism, elitism or individualism tends to capitalism, but economic personalism tends to what we call, I mean, personalism tends to what we call economic personalism. It sounds a little bit, you know, repetitive but it's the best we've come up with, I think. I, I do think that economic personalism is the best term for what we're talking about, which means that economic activity, all the institutions of the economy, and of course, by extension, all the institutions of civil, religious, and domestic society are directed toward the good of the human person, not the good of the elite, not the good of the collective, not the good of the state, but the human person. If anything materially harms the interests of a single human person or inhibits or prevents that a single human person from participating to the fullest possible extent in the institutions of society, especially in, in what we're talking about, the economic common good, the market or an institution such as money and credit, which is critical or you know the ability to be productive through labor or ownership of capital then it is not personalist 
and it should be corrected through acts of social justice. So in a sense, uh, economics as if people mattered. Yes. In other words, the, the title that E.F. Schumacher took for his book, which was Socialist, and then, he's, and then he redefined private property, redefined society, redefined everything else. He was a member of the, Schumacher was a member of the inner circle of the Fabian Society. So, and it's a wonder why his book was taken as a virtual economic Bible by so many Catholics and cited in the U.S. bishops pastoral on the economy, economic justice for all. It's socialism. I, see, I've been around Michael long enough to know what buttons to push, so I I knew the phrase, <laughs> and I knew that'd get him all fired up. <laughs> provocateur. <laughs> so I, I want to just uh, make a quick comment here because most people, when they hear the word economics, go to sleep. <laughs> okay, it's Talk about economics, but really, we see that it's how you address the most basic needs of human beings, that all human beings need to eat, all human beings need to sleep and hopefully under some kind of shelter so they don't freeze to death. You know, they're just basic things for your survival that are essential to every person. You know, I don't care if it's Bill Gates or, you know, or me or you or someone who's having to live on the street. We all have basic needs. And so I think Bill could use a week on the streets right now. Yeah, right. And that would be interesting. Someone ought to do a reality show with him, just really putting him out there with nothing but his clothes and no credit cards. Um, but then you have to look at what else do we need? We want a sense of security so that it's not just survival from moment to moment, but we can have a sense that, okay, certain things are there and I can go and do some other things other than worrying constantly about, you know, whether everything's going to run out. So, and then beyond those, you have needs uh, to belong, uh, needs of belonging. And, and you can see, for example, where people get into gangs, go into gangs, it's generally because they feel somewhat isolated all by themselves, that they don't have a group that values them. And so they look for um, that kind of affirmation and companionship and unfortunately it can go in a bad direction but that's reflecting their human need for sort of being in, in some kind of a group that jives with them um, and then you start looking beyond that and these ideas of recognition and there are certain social needs that people have and I think in terms of um, understanding how we depend on each other and depend on things called institutions, that's starting to move into higher levels of, you know, what human beings need. And we would finally say the very highest level, um, the one under Maslow, he said self-actualization, which could also be interpreted as becoming everything you can be or approaching that developing as a human being becoming more virtuous and we would say even above that that just stopping at our own good is not sufficient we really also we we need other people we need to create ways for people to live and interact in a, a beneficial way and so this the idea of the common good um, in the way we're interpreting it, which reflects, um, I believe, Pope Pius XI 
and Father William Faree, is that the common good isn't just this amorphous, oh, you know, um, this amorphous abstract thing um, in the sense that no one can really say what it is, or it's it just means all these these good things that that are out there that we should each have a claim to. It was defined uh, by Father Freehe, that's where I first uh, learned of this specific definition, that it's really a network of all these social inventions uh, called institutions, which the state is a social tool, um, our money system is a social tool, our tax system, they're supposed to serve specific needs. Um, this tax system isn't there just to, you know, be a big pain around everyone's uh, or big rock around everyone's neck. It is supposed to be the way we pay for the, the legitimate costs of government, which also the government isn't just there, you know, in order to uh, take away our liberty. The government it was supposed to be um, the instrument which protects our basic human rights for each of us life, liberty, and what George Mason pointed out in the Virginia Declaration of Right, with the means of acquiring and possessing property. And by that, it's productive property in order to pursue human happiness. That's our development as human beings. So then the question is, going back to economics, which we see as just one, really the most basic part of our existence but it's it's there every it's a, we're concerned with that throughout most of our lives is I can our serve uh, fulfilling our economic needs, and we think that there's a way that we can open up opportunities for people to really start developing their higher um, pursuits, and they can only do that is if they have economic independence, and then you ask where does that come from. And the problem with the present systems, whether you're talking capitalism or socialism, is that under those systems, it's assumed that the way the ordinary person earns a living is by getting a job and getting paid a wage uh, or salary. Or if they can't do that, you have the government step in, take from those who are producing and redistribute it to those who are not or cannot. So that doesn't leave anyone really independent. I mean, it, it, you could even look at very highly paid people. Um, and for example, even professors, I, I used to think tenured professorship meant you couldn't get fired. You're in there. But apparently if you say the wrong thing in the wrong setting, a tenured professor can lose, lose their position. And, um, and sometimes, you know, maybe, well, the, the point is that you can be a very highly paid wage serf in any company, um, or you can be someone working in a fast food restaurant. And if you feel a sense that you can't speak up if something bad is happening because you know you could be fired, that tells you something. You're not free. If you're really free, you should be able to say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to report this, or if, you, if you're not willing to make a change, I'm going to leave. I don't have to stay here. So we want people to have that sense that they're not beholden to the government or beholden to an employer. And what is it that can make them independent? Well, 
we believe the answer is own or be owned. And when we say own, we're not just saying collectively, generally, oh, you know, this is we all own America kind of stuff. No, you have to have rights, pro property rights in something that will produce an income. And what the property rights entitle you to is the full stream of the income that your thing produces and also control over how that thing is used. So this is something that the conventional paradigms, conventional systems, ignore the importance of property, that each person must have access to the means to acquire income producing things, have rights in them. And then the question arises, okay, so capitalism says, sure, you can do that, you know, just work hard, save your money, invest in Wall Street. And we say, well, there's a couple problems with that, is that increasingly it's getting hard, harder and harder for most people to save enough to even buy shares on Wall Street. And then the shares on Wall Street, the way it operates today, it's- Art you know, for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And it's not producing you know, a stream of income. It's really based on the idea that you want to sell those shares for a higher amount than you bought them. So, and you're, you're kind of waiting for other people to move in that direction where you can sell your shares to them. But we're talking about actually, it's, it's like owning a, a business um, or owning, if, you, if you're Bill Gates, you own shares in your company, which as the whole company produces, that's entitling you to the income from those shares that you own and supposedly the right to vote those shares generally, you know, to, determine who will be on the board of directors to re represent you in the company. So we have a, and, and this is getting back to the idea of paradigms. If you start with an assumption that the only way people can earn a, a decent living is by, uh, through their uh, labor incomes, then you're put into a position of, well, where else are people gonna get increases except by raising the minimum wage? And it's been so low, you know, and you can see something's not right here. Are people working in fast food restaurants who haven't seen a raise, you know, in 15, 20 years and what they're earning is not enough to survive on. So what's the answer? And so under capitalism, which is, you know, there's, and we, we really see that those two systems are so intermingled. Now we, we just call them wage welfare systems. But they say raise the minimum wage and everyone will be good. And then, you know, then what happens then? Well, the employers are going to have to take that increasing cost into account when they price their products. So, you know, there's a good chance it's going to raise the prices of things. Or they can say, okay, well, I'm just going to wait a little bit because I've heard there's this new machine that comes out and it's gonna replace 50 of the people who work here. It's gonna be cheaper, you know? So that doesn't solve the problem. So what we're saying is why not enable every person to be able to purchase and own and get the income from the new technologies that are gonna replace their jobs. And it's, you know, it's not so bad losing a crappy job if you're able to earn a dividend income and do the kind of work you really love, which may and should be eventually the work that you would do for free because it's important work. I mean, priests aren't going into 
um, what they do because they think they're going to become billionaires. Okay, so so they're able to disconnect themselves from worrying every day about whether they're going to put. I heard this line once: uh, "Freedom is a freedom sounds good. People like using it, but the actual practice of it, they're not really care much for." It's kind of like yeah. uh, freedom is scary. People want it, but when they say, "All right, time to apply it," uh, not really. Yeah, and you know, oh, sorry, Mike. Oh, I was I was gonna throw in one of my Latin bits here. It, it's like as Seneca said two thousand years ago: "Slavery holds many men fast, but many more hold fast to slavery." He wasn't talking about you know simple chattel slavery. He was talking about the people who sought to be you know protected and taken care of and it's a very great danger especially in a free society that people will quickly surrender their freedom if they think that they can get something by doing so and then it usually ends up that they don't get what they were after anyway yeah and i, I think you can also see for along the, that vein um a quote by attributed to harriet tubman and that was i freed a thousand slaves, I would have freed a thousand more, but they didn't recognize that they were slaves. So that's another problem is that um, in even getting people to understand how what economic personalism is different and what it means would, would mean to their lives, it's at this point, as long as people feel secure in the way that things are working right now, even though it's it's like a sinking ship, they're not going to even consider getting into rowboats, you know, or, uh, until it's you know the water lines up to their neck. And so, and what is what is that uh, referred to? It's you know really how technology, the pace of how it's improving, to the point where you know you have artificial intelligence, which will think a lot faster than most of us. You'll have robotics, which will be far stronger and, you know, able to work for longer hours without getting sick. You know, you're going to have all these things which are supposed to replace the the amount of human labor. I mean, that's a good thing or it could be a good thing. Kind of like a streetlights were to the, the traffic cops. Technology eliminated that job, which ended up opening up other jobs. Yeah, and you know, and the thing is, that's correct. It can, it will open up new jobs. You know, and people, it's like moving from the horse and buggy to okay, now we have cars. So it eliminated, you know, those former jobs, but now it opens up, you know, car manufacturing jobs. But now we're moving towards robotics, where you hardly have anyone on the shop floor, who's actually. I mean, most of the construction is done by the uh, robots on assembly lines. And, this, and we're not talking about what Schwab's talking about was eliminating everyone's work and just giving you a UBI to sit there and play tiddlywinks all day. This is actually doing something else, right? No. Yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, this, the effect of technology has been known for a couple hundred years. Jean-Baptiste Say, you know, more fame, more noted for Say's Law of Markets which he didn't actually invent, but he articulated it best, and Charles Babbage and others like that in the early 19th century. The purpose of technology and the effect of technology is to take human labor out of the productive process and replace it with technology, which is faster, more efficient, and cheaper. Now, 
as Harold Moulton, whose book we republished, The Formation of Capital, some years ago, a very important book, but that's not the point here. The point here is that Moulton looked at the advancing technology and saw how up to a point it did create new jobs after replacing older jobs, but only up to a point. He figured that at some point, technology would advance to the to, at such a rate that it would replace more jobs than it created. He thought that the turning point would come sometime about the mid-1980s. I think what we saw is that he was being extremely optimistic. The turning point actually came in the late 60s, I, in, in my opinion. Particularly, he did not you know, foretell the, you know, what would happen with computers since at the time, the 1930s, he made his prediction. He had no idea what a computer was and what it could do. Yeah, DARPA the, wasn't around then. Yeah. The moment computers came in, then we had to learn to deal with them. And so far, the only person who's actually done something about it, probably without realizing he was doing it at the time he did it, was Lewis Kelso. People have to become owners of the technology that's displacing them from their jobs. Otherwise, what you're looking at is a nation of mostly have-nots and a couple of haves, which is not a recipe for social stability or the point of personalism, growth in human, you know, human development, growth in virtue, uh, you know, becoming more fully human. You don't do it as a slave or a dependent. This goes back to the... Uh... The flawed idea of uh, just like a two-party system, GOP, Democrat, they're on the same team, you're not on it. Capitalism, socialism, basically you're not in any of it. I mean, there was actually a video from uh, Davos last year where Melania, not Melania, uh, Trump's daughter Ivanka was sitting next to the guy who goes, capitalism is dead. And she ended up hugging the guy afterwards. There's video on there before anybody throws anything at me. Go look at it. As as Michael as Michael said, <laughs> what what's that phrase you say at the beginning? Uh, everything is true. Uh, you're not going to believe it. Uh, uh, I'm not making this. I'm not making this <laughs> up. It's literally video. I, I stole that you from Anna Russell. Yes. <laughs> so this is just like saying that there's other options, right? Yes, and I you know I think Mike named two very important people. Um, who are, whose ideas are at the heart of what we call economic personalism. Uh, now, there are, were thinkers that, that preceded them, but th those two um, really defined and articulated uh, the ideas of ownership and money in such a way that we could make a new type of economy possible, one where everyone, every human being, had the right to become an owner of productive capital with the means of acquiring it that would not destroy the private property rights of anyone else. Because it's one thing to say, for example, with some of the proposals that we hear that, okay, we acknowledge that advanced technology is displacing jobs more quickly than we ever anticipated and there's going to be a huge uh then the, the this uh gap between the haves and have-nots is only going to get wider more quickly so what we can do is those who own these technologies will tax them okay we'll determine whatever amount it is then we'll per 
person will determine how much of those tax dollars get distributed to each person including the people who are taxed in order to create this abundance that would be spread out amongst everyone well the problem with that is that you're not number one making the other people productive because one assumption in our paradigm is that you can be productive in two ways one is through your labor of any type whether it's manual intellectual entrepreneurial or whatever it's coming out of you you're making you're giving that input the other is through ownership of your of the tools you could be an owner of a tractor and you don't maybe you're not able to use it but you let a company use that tool and they're able to produce a lot more than people with shovels for example so you can contribute capital and that will be part of the the mix that creates the goods and services that will be sold so what we have then a disconnect between people being productive and what is being produced who is producing it and how the incomes from what's produced get distributed it gets so darn complicated you just get everyone into the the whole you know, mix government and unions and and by the way, unions we would say were an essential social tool that was developed to protect the rights of working people who by themselves would be easy prey for people with economic power. And so but the problem was the unions are trapped in the wage welfare system. So they keep asking for the sorts of things that help make our products more expensive to produce in this country and so that's one reason jobs go overseas or jobs get replaced by technology so that in it we have to think rethink unions and we believe they should become ownership unions so that um, most of us don't know how to invest most of us don't know what would be our rights if we were to be able to become capital owners so it helps to have an institution that is really focusing on making sure every person has that equal right to become an owner and equal access and then once they have it that they're getting the full private property rights they're entitled to but in any case going back to this solution of having very wealthy people pay out a certain amount so everyone else can be getting a portion of the incomes that they've generated well now has that made anyone really independent and how much this you know these checks are going to get what's it going to cover you know is it going to be enough so that not only are you being able to feed yourself and your family and put a roof over your head but you know god forbid you know be able to go into other areas of work that are important but maybe don't pay so well no it, it, it does not create economic independence and that's yeah. the point we're all subject great yeah as don was pointing out and ironically uh in their last debate in 1927 george bernard shaw and gk chesterton addressed this exact same situation in almost exactly the same words and ironically most chestertonians don't realize what that whole debate was about even though both shaw and chesterton came flat out and said what the what the issue was shaw insisted that the only thing you needed to talk about was income because nothing other than income existed 
If you can just get income to people, you will solve all the world's problems. It doesn't matter how you get it to them, just do it. Chesterton had just finished saying, no, the issue is power. Do people need power over their own lives? And property vests the owner with power, assuming that you have the full rights of property and access to the means of acquiring and possessing property. Chesterton said the only thing worth even talking about and that we're debating here is power. And Shaw refused to talk about power. He said the only thing worth talking about is income because only income exists. And that's a really important point that Mike's making is that the word power, you know, we, we see it in a, many different ways. One is uh, Lord Acton's statement that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we can see- I was thinking he may and I have that. the power, but okay, yeah. that too. <laughs> yeah, but you need it. Another thing is that every person needs power because that enables you to create change in your life, to direct your own life. If you don't have it, someone else has power over you. Well, you're their slave, basically. So then the question is, well, what what, are, what does this means to acquire and possess, you know, productive property? What is that? And that's where this paradigm also looks at money. What is money? Uh, what is how should it be created? What is its purpose? And if you boil money down, the, the, really the idea behind it, it's not so much the physical forms it can take, which could be, you know, a dollar bill, it could be your credit card, uh, it could be, a, you know, just an electronic transfer. Uh, it, it's basically a way of how we measure value between what I'm exchanging with, with you, for example. You, I, and we're both expecting to have to receive um, in our transactions transaction exchange if we're being fair to each other an equal exchange of value that um, I see something is and you see the same thing or, or you see what we're exchanging as as being equal in value or equivalent so money becomes a vehicle by which we can kind of measure this because um, otherwise it's like okay you've got a cow and I got a chicken is that of equivalent value? And, and so it's it's a mental construct that human beings have come up with. I'm, try, I'm trying not to laugh because all I can think of is how do you make it rain? You know, with uh, if you take the cash away and throw in like, I don't know, coins, that's hailing. And then if you're making trying to make it rain with electronic, uh, like Bitcoin or something, how <laughs> you pull yeah. that one off? Well, let's see. That's a great question. Mike that's say, a stupid well, question. Well, well, no, it actually is, is a good question because what's happening right now with the way money is created, and this is not just in our country, it's every country, it's now become whatever the government says is the amount of money that should be out there. And then the central bank pretty much is operating um, in lockstep with governments and the central bank is used to create turn government debt into what we recognize as money and so what we're saying is number one that's putting a lot of control into the government and into the central banks they're not basing it on actual private sector production and goods and services which is what we say 
that all money in whatever form it comes, you know, is, is finally manifested should reflect real assets. If you create money based on government debt, well, number one, we ran into this problem a number of years ago where the uh, federal government's uh, debt was getting so low that economists were worried, well, what's going to back our dollars? You know, so we better have more government debt. Well, that's the stupidest thing that I can think of. Why should we have government debt? Government should do what it needs to do, and it should avoid getting into debt. It, there may be emergencies. Isn't that what Hamilton tried pushing at the uh, federal con convention, too, when he tried to get the, the federal bank because he wanted more debt? No, that that is actually a misstatement of what Hamilton was talking about. Hamilton was talking about when, when he said that a national debt is a good thing. He was saying that in order to ensure that there's enough circulating media in the country, when the government borrows existing savings from the citizens, it can use at its paper of borrowings to back other issues of currency, but no more. That is not what the government has been doing since uh, 1861, illegally under the Constitution, but that's a whole different story. What the government does now is not take existing savings and use it to secure limited issues of currency. What it's doing is issuing government debt as much as it can get away with and using that debt, which is not backed by anything other than the government's future ability to tax, that is what backs the new money that it's creating. Now, at, which actually creates a sort of quasi-shadow economy because what they're dealing in is not backed by anything real. Because how do you quantify future taxes when you're destroying the economy? You can't. But at the same time, and this is what has kept the United States afloat, as well as any other country that's managing to do to be productive, the real economy is out there producing marketable goods and services, and businesses and customers are creating money between them. This goes back to what money actually is. Money is not, and credit are not a commodity in and of themselves, the way the Bitcoin people or even the federal government or Keynes thought. What it is, is we go back to Adam Smith's first principle of economics, stated in The Wealth of Nations. Consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. Well, there's, that means there's only, you know, aside from theft or charity, the only way you're going to be able to consume what is produced is either to produce it yourself or to have something that you've produced to trade to somebody else that they've produced. There must be something produced before you can consume. Keynes, of course, thought that you first you had to consume before you, you had to refrain from consumption before you could produce. A broken glass theory. Really gets surreal when you start to break that down. Well, how can you refrain from consumption of what's produced if you, have, if you haven't produced it yet? But anyway, what Jean-Baptiste Say did was take using Smith's principle as a starting point, say that the mechanism by means of which I exchange what I produce for what you produce is called money. We create this abstraction in our minds 
that what you have is the equivalent of what I have so we can exchange fairly. But the, the key to the whole thing is we have to have produced something. And then he extended this logically. We can also exchange promises of equal value for things we have not yet produced, but that we expect to produce. And we can actually assign a value to something we expect to produce based on, you know, statistical chance and, you know, what's, what's the likelihood of this happening? Well, that can mean that the $100,000 that I promise to deliver to you in 10 years is only worth $50,000 today. But that means we can still make a deal for $50,000. As long as in 10 years, I deliver $100,000 to the people who present my promise to me. So, so that we'll, we'll get deeper in all these, I'm sure, in the next coming weeks. So what yeah. is the plan? Yeah, for this we, we probably should get to cut to the chase and say, <laughs> what is the plan? What personalism addresses is protection of the natural rights of life, liberty, and private property, all three of which are under extreme assault today. And what economic personalism is, it focuses on empowering each and every human person with the means of protecting life and liberty through access to the means of acquiring and possessing private property in capital. So what is the plan for the series? What can people expect in the next coming weeks, months, years? A lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what we're going to be doing is following through the the sections in the book that Mike and I co-authored, which I don't know if it's showing backwards to you right now, uh, economic personalism, property, power, and justice for every person. And what it will do is uh, present uh, some of the historical background of how this idea became uh, labeled the way we labeled it, because as far as we know, not, there there have been some uses of the term economic personalism, but not exactly in the way that we are, because it doesn't they don't address ownership as fundamental to human freedom, and they don't offer a way that someone who is not an owner can become an owner without taking away what's uh, what what an owner has. So. Um, We'll talk about some of the uh, key thinkers behind, that led to the development of this paradigm. And when we say paradigm, it's just a way to understand the world and to uh, solve problems. And if a paradigm does, it doesn't work anymore, or it can be its assumptions are proven false, then it's time to look for a new paradigm. So this is what we believe this is. We, we had been calling it the just third way um, mainly because we, we do believe that any human system of thought or any human invention is always going to have some kind of flaws or defects or inadequacies. So we kind of like the open-endedness of just the just third way. But with that focus on the universal, um, universal human rights, the uh, dignity of every human being, the, the need for every human being to have a, an independent source of power and income. So we'll look at that. We'll look at the principles. We'll look very 
quickly at you know sort of the basic theory which mike was mentioning some of these um how we can bring it about because it better be practical or otherwise it's not a very good paradigm um and then some of uh the proposals that we were looking towards in in terms of how do you universalize this idea or people's ability to benefit from it it takes legislation so we'll talk a little bit about that and we're also looking at the role of a global communicator in helping get this idea which is competing with many many ideas which are you know being spread by people with a lot, a lot more resources than we have we have a great powerful idea but frankly we don't have a lot of power in terms of um, human beings helping us communicate this um, we don't have billions of dollars so we could hire the people to help communicate it so therefore why are we looking why did we write this book for a particular audience and um, as we'll, we'll get into that but I think what's key is that within Catholic social teachings there was this core element of social justice what that means the focus on the human person that then leads very naturally to well how do you address the most basic needs of every human being so and what we would ask of in this particular case uh pope francis what could pope francis do to help spread this idea yeah and i should emphasize the fact that it would be of great help to people watching the series to download the free book, the ebook, or of course buy massive quantities of the book for you know from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or a special order from your local bookstore. Uh, it, it, I, I don't have the uh, the, the yes, I, I can give the URL landing um, page for the free book and also the purchase if you want to. Yes. So if they want to get right to the landing page that they can either order or get their book, they would go to uh, www.cesj.org, Center for Economic and Social Justice.org, slash economic hyphen personalism hyphen book. Oh, so, I'll have that in the show notes underneath yeah you, so, yeah you can show that right put it yeah. up on the screen as long as you hit the but, show see more underneath this video underneath here exactly it, and we, drop down box yeah. boom <laughs> and we just put up um on our home page on cesj.org if you go down to special features there's a link on the book and that will give some background and and the link to that landing page and it would be really helpful for us for people as they listen to this series to be reading along um, and posing questions to us um, because ideas are meant to be challenged and we, you know we want to make sure that this it works and it works in a, a just way and they see the chat so uh, or they see the comments so yes yeah, send a send a uh, question them underneath in the uh, chat section or comment section and they will respond Eventually. Get an as soon as we can. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Don, Michael, appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week. Okay. Sounds great, Steve. Thanks.